Thank you, Leonard. It's not just the old guys that can't hit those notes. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to read our text this morning, verses 13 to 16, and then we're going to pray together and study God's word together this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Peter writes these words for our encouragement and for our obedience. He says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. God, it's uh, tempting to read these words and feel either a sense of dread or an air of self-righteousness. I pray that you would help us to find our footing on the sure place of your grace and your mercy, and that from from that position of your grace, we would find both the desire and the will and the ability to live out what you call us to in these verses. Father, help us now to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It was probably about 20 years or so ago, um, I came to a biblical understanding of a major doctrine of the faith that radically changed my life. And that doctrine is the doctrine of grace. I grew up in the church And I don't recall anyone ever explicitly telling me that I needed to do certain things in order to earn the favor of God, but functionally, I believed that. Functionally, I I lived that out. I had this idea uh, in my mind that if I cleaned up my life, and if I kept it cleaned up, God would love me, And he would continue to love me. But if I didn't adhere to certain standards, then God would either not initially accept me as his child, or sometime later he would reconsider his decision in accepting me as his child and boot me out of the family. Okay? So I... Maybe you grew up that same way too. I, I don't know if that's a, a common experience that I share with you. But what ended up happening as I grew up in my faith is I had just under the surface this underlying level of fear. Fear that if I crossed some line, then I was at risk. No one, no one ever really defined the line, 
but you just kind of knew it was there. There was this line, and, and my obedience to Christ was motivated by fear of not crossing that line, okay? It was in my study of the doctrine of grace in my early 20s that God opened my eyes to the overwhelming, abundant, sufficient grace of his. It changed my life. It it changed the way I viewed God. It changed the way I viewed my relationship with him. And I remember having to wrestle through some verses of scripture that really made me pause and think about what did I believe. Some of those verses come at the end of Romans 5 and the beginning of Romans 6. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans 5, starting at verse 20. He, He writes this. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And note now, chapter 6, verse 1, the question that is inevitably raised Whenever Paul says this, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Grace, properly preached, will be twisted by some people and they will try to make it into a license to sin because if grace abounds every time we sin, then why not sin all the more so that grace continues to abound? You you see the charge that gets leveled there? If Paul says that sin abounds, grace super abounds, then let's just keep on sinning. It sounds like it brings about more grace. Well, that's a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying. Some of you, how many of you ever heard of a guy named Chuck Swindoll? Ever listened to this guy on the radio? Okay, I figure most of you would probably recognize the name. Uh, Swindoll wrote a book called The Grace Awakening. I, I love the book. And in his book, he quotes the great preacher of old, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, as Lloyd-Jones describes this Romans passage that I just read for you. And here's what Lloyd-Jones has to say about grace from Romans 5. He says this, There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. This, he says, is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. He says, if a man preaches justification by works, that is, you have to do something, no one would ever raise this question. 
Some men preach like this. They say, if you want to be Christians, and if you want to go to heaven, you must stop committing sins. You must take up good works. And if you do so regularly and constantly, and do not fail to keep on at it, you will make yourselves Christians. You will reconcile yourselves to God, and you will go to heaven. Obviously, a man who preaches in that strain would never be liable to a misunderstanding. No one would ever say to that man, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because that man's whole emphasis is on this. If you go on sinning, you are certain to be damned. And only if you stop sinning can you save yourself. So the misunderstanding could never arise. Chuck Swindoll then finishes that little section by saying this. If you claim to be a messenger of grace, if you think you are really preaching grace, yet no one is taking advantage of it, maybe you haven't preached it hard enough or strong enough. I can assure you of this. Grace-killing ministers will never have that charge brought against them. They make sure of that. Now, why do I bring this up? Why... Why was this such a radical shift in my thinking uh, so many years ago? It was because of this. I want you to understand this morning that if you are here and you are a Christian, your salvation was totally an act of grace by God. From beginning to end, apart from the sovereign grace of God, you would not be a Christian if it were not for his grace. I didn't understand this growing up. I thought thought somehow I had to save myself, or at minimum, I thought I had to keep myself saved. I I thought I I had to clean myself up, and and if I followed a a certain standard of rules, I, I could keep that salvation. I was actually living out of this works-based salvation and not grace-based And then I began encountering some more verses in Scripture that really kept working on my mind. Verses like Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Dead people don't make themselves come alive. By grace, God did something. He he made me come alive. Later in that same passage, Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is a gift of God. Even the faith that I have to believe in Christ was was a gift of God's grace to me. Peter says in this letter that we're studying later in chapter 2, he says, Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that call there that that Peter's talking about, that is not merely an invite. It's not like, "Would would you please just come? That's not an invite. That is the power of God. It's a call that says, This will happen. It's the same call that God made when he created light. He called forth light, and guess what happened? Light came forth. 
right? This calling that God puts on your life, it's a calling that has an effect. His grace toward you calls you out of darkness, places you in light. And then I read verses like Philippians 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Not maybe, not might. He says he will bring it to completion. And then in Jude, verse 24, I read, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Listen, friends. My salvation, my faith, my eternal life, totally the result of God's work of grace in my life. He called me out of darkness. He placed me in light. He is keeping me by his power so that his sovereign purpose of completing me to the end will happen. Back there when I was 12 years old and God saved me, he says, I'm going to use this life for my glory from 12 all the way until 99. I don't know how long I'm going to live. All the way out there, right? I'm going to use his life. It was grace when I was saved. It was grace that's keeping me. It's grace that carries me on. It is grace upon grace upon grace. We even sing a song. It says, grace, grace, God's grace. You know the song? Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. It's all grace. Peter is so overcome with excitement as he's thinking about this and as he's considering the truth of of God's grace, that he already wrote for us verses 1 to 12, where he is just gushing about the grace of God and the blessings of God that come with that. He talks about this inheritance that's being kept for us. He's talking about how God uh, caused us to be born again, all of this grace. And then he comes to verse 13, the first verse of our text this morning, and he says, and that's not all. He says, there's even more grace on its way. Look at verse 13, end of the verse. He says, set your hope fully on what? On the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace saved you. Grace holds you and keeps you. And one day, Peter says, there's even more grace that you're going to experience. Now, I don't know what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. I, I hope I'm still on earth uh, when the clouds break open and, and Jesus comes. I don't know what that day will be like exactly, but for the believer, it will be the most wonderful day in all of time. I don't know what heaven's going to look like exactly. We have a class here that we do every now and then. We, we study about heaven and, and the things to come. I I think what we know about heaven is a fraction of what we will experience when we're there. The love and joy and peace that's there. Paul described it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, it is written, what no eye has seen and no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Day after day, Week after week, millennia after millennia, 
I think in heaven, God will show us an act of his grace that he did for us, and we will just burst out in joy and praise and adoration. For 10,000 years, we'll sing about that one. And then he'll show us another one. And for 10,000 more years, we'll be praising him for that, for his grace. And what is time? I mean, we have all the time in the world to bask in his love and mercy, kindness and grace. It was all grace, past, present, and future. Now, when you start talking about grace like that with a bunch of believers, it starts getting some people really nervous. Because if you start talking about being saved by grace, if you start talking about being kept by grace and being guarded by grace, and if you keep, if you keep talking about more grace that's even to come, there'll be some people that will say, my goodness, if all you talk about is grace and how you can't undo grace, then you're going to cause people to shoot off in left field in all of their sinfulness. They're going to abuse that kind of grace. They're going to start living lives of debauchery. No, they won't. No, they won't. That is not how this works. Because when grace is rightly understood and when grace is rightly appreciated, it leads the Christian not into sin, but into holiness. That's what Peter is getting ready to tell us. That's what Peter is standing on. It's exactly what Peter is getting ready to show us. Look again at verse 13. He says, Therefore, what's the therefore? Well, the therefore is all of verses 1 to 12. This, this great salvation that has been given to you and is being preserved for you by grace. Therefore, what does he say? Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Why? Because there's a responsibility coming based on your understanding of grace. Notice, notice well, first of all, what is the responsibility? We'll look at verse 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Notice what Peter did there. This is so important. Notice what Peter is doing. He tells us about our salvation, verses 1 to 12, verse 13. He tells us about our blessings in Christ. He tells us to fix our hope on the grace that's coming, the grace that will be revealed when Christ comes. And then he says, okay, now stop. Now that you understand your salvation, now that you understand the grace that's been given to you, and now that you've fixed your hope on the grace that's coming, now that you've got all that, he says, you have a responsibility. Your responsibility is obedience. Grace comes first, then comes obedience. Notice, Peter did not flip those two around. This is so important. Peter does not say, obey, and then you can fix your hope on the graces to come. No, he says, first fix your hope on the graces to come, now obey. 
You have to get that order right. You have to get that order right. Your obedience to Christ is not to earn your salvation or to keep your salvation. Your obedience to Christ is the right response to the grace that's already been given to you in Christ. Your obedience is a reflection of the fact that you cannot imagine doing anything else in life except to be pleasing to the one who would show you that much grace. This concept changed my life forever because it was when I finally understood grace, I didn't want to sin anymore. I didn't desire to do anything displeasing to my Lord anymore. Suddenly, my obedience was driven not by fear, but rather by gratitude. It's a huge difference. Huge difference. For the first time ever, when this sunk in my head, I experienced rest in my Christian walk. I experienced peace. I experienced the freedom of Christ. I finally understood I am his son. And as the son of the king, I don't want to be conformed anymore to all of the passions of my former ignorance. I want to be conformed to that one, to the king. And notice what Peter does. He addresses the mind. Look what he says. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, he's talking about a mind thing there. Usually when you and I uh, think about conformity to God, uh, we're thinking about our, our outward actions. And it gets there. That, that's definitely part of it. But Peter says it actually starts with the mind. It starts with your understanding. What you do on the outside flows from who you are on the inside. And what are we supposed to be on the inside? We are supposed to be like God. And what is God? Verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. God is holy. That means he's set apart from. He is utterly different from sin. He is undefiled by sin. He is unstained by sin. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly pure. He is perfectly holy. Of all of the attributes of God, and there are a lot of them in scriptures, holiness is the only one that's triple emphasized. When Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne, do you remember what the seraphim were, were calling out as they circled the throne? Isaiah 60, or 6 verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Three times it's repeated. That is a, 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 a Hebrew literary mechanism to draw your attention to what's being said. Three times the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy. Nowhere else in all of scripture are God's attributes tripled in succession like that. You can't read in scripture where God is love, 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 or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. He is those things, but only this one is it triple emphasized. He is holy, holy, 
holy. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly set apart from sin. And here's the sad reality. You're not. Because sometimes you still sin. Sometimes I still sin. Here we're told of the holiness of God and a call to the holiness of God. And yet we look at our lives and we say, but I'm not that. We're not instantly transformed, are we? We're not perfectly renewed in our minds yet, are we? And I think sometimes, even as we think about the places where, where we struggle in our, in our own lives, I don't even think that we realize how woefully short we fall in this category of holiness. I, I fear that most of the time when you and I think about unholiness, when you and I think about our sin, we typically just think about the things that we do. We, we don't even always consider the, the inner man. Let me show you how deep this actually goes. In, in his book called The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul uh, writes this. He says, God commands that we do certain good things. For example, he commands us to give to the poor. So we give to the poor. That is a good deed, isn't it? Sproul says, yes and no. It is good in the sense that our outward act conforms to what God commands. In that sense, we do good often. But God also looks at the heart. He is concerned about our deepest motivations for a good deed to pass the standard of God's goodness. It must flow out of a heart that loves God perfectly and loves our neighbor perfectly as well. Since none of us achieves that perfect love of God and neighbor, all of our outwardly deeds are tarnished. They carry the blemish of the imperfections of our inner motivations. He says, the logic of the Bible is this. Since no one has a perfect heart, no one does a perfect deed. We don't normally think about things like that, do we? We don't normally go that deep. We tend to think that we're pretty good people. And I don't think we stop to see sometimes how far we actually fall from the holiness of God. God is perfect. We're not. And yet we're called to that standard. We're called to strive for holiness. Now, what keeps you motivated? If I look at the holiness of God, like he just described it, and I see myself here, and I see that I can 
never attain that, then what keeps me motivated? Why not just throw up my hands and say, well, then I give up now. I can't do that. How can I ever make that standard? And it's only because of this. Because we first know the grace that's covered all of our sins. That song that I sang for you a moment ago, it goes on to say, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. It is only when I know grace that I can ever strive for the holiness of God. Because if it were the other way around, I'm doomed. It's because of grace that when I sin, and I do, and you do too, that I can confess that to God, I can repent of that, and I can know that I can be changed from the inside out. And over time, I root out this sin, and then I root out that one, and then the Holy Spirit helps me to root out this one, and, and, I, and I pursue holiness, and I pursue this God that I want to reflect. And over time, I'm transformed from one degree of glory to the next, so that over time, I look and act more and more like Jesus because I stand on grace. You know why this is so important? Because as a child of God, you are an image bearer of God. You are called to bear his image to people. That's really what Peter is calling us to. He's saying to us, God is holy, and as his image bearer, you need to be holy as well. You need to think and you need to act like him. That's your obligation. You know what happens when you and I sin? Here's what happens when you and I sin. In thought, in attitude, or in deed. And again, let me quote from, from Sproul in his book. He says this, The slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act a rebellious act in which we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. It is an insult to his holiness, and we become false witnesses to God. When we sin as the image bearers of God, we are saying to the whole creation, to all of nature under our dominion, to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, this is how God is. When we sin, we tell the whole world, this is how your creator behaves. Look at us. This is the character of the Almighty. We say to the world when we sin, God is covetous. God is ruthless. God is bitter. He is a murderer. He is a thief. He is a slanderer. He is an adulterer. If you want to see God, look at me. I don't know about you, but as a blood-bought, faith-infused, grace-bestowed child of a holy God, I do not want the world 
to look at me and my sin and think that that is my creator. I want to be able to say to the world, when I was dead in my sin, God made me alive in Christ because of his grace. And he pointed me to the greatest demonstration of his grace at the cross of Jesus Christ. And there at the cross, Jesus took the full brunt of the punishment that was due to me. And there I saw Jesus bleed and died for my rebellion. And three days later, he came up out of that grave. And that life that Jesus has, God, by his grace, gave it to me. And I look forward to the day when I see the full revelation of his grace coming. And in the meantime, what I want you to see about my father is his grace in me. And I want to live in a way that reflects that grace. And God thumped me over the head with this this week. This is real stuff. There was a temptation right in front of me. It was right there. The fleeting pleasure of sin was screaming out to me, go ahead, man, this is going to make you happy. And God took this truth that I've been studying this week and just said, Sean, I am holy and you are called to be holy. You can go down that path if you want, but if you do so, you're going to tell all of creation Your God is a lustful God. Your God is a covetous God. Is that what you want? Man, I stopped for a moment and I said, God, you have shown me so much grace. I want to be holy like you're holy. And just sort of stop me in my tracks. And by the grace of God again in my life, I was able to turn from that and, Worship my father. This isn't hypotheticals. This is real life. This kind of grace, when you understand what it has accomplished for you, transforms you from the inside out. So you say, I want to be holy like that God is holy. I believe like Peter, the more you reflect on this kind of grace, the more you will want to obey him, the more you will want to live in holiness. And far Far from abusing grace, the more you have this habit of visualizing, I am on a path to the full realization of the grace of God and nothing is going to deter me off this path. I am moving for grace and it is grace that is keeping me here. When you can fix your mind there, friend, you'll be on your path for living a life of holiness. That's what Peter wants us to understand. It starts with grace, but it leads to holiness. It leads to right living. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a couple minutes. I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want you to think about what we've just learned in your own life. Here's the first question. Where would your life be right now if God had not stepped in and saved you? If you had been left to the sin that you enjoyed, 
How far would you be from God right now? Question number two. Think about when God saved you. Maybe you know a specific time and place. Maybe you don't. That's not as important as thinking about how much grace God has shown you. When's the last time you've reflected on the grace that God showed you that when you were dead, he gave you life, he gave you faith to believe, and every day since then, he has given you grace upon grace upon grace as you have faithfully, yet sometimes wobbly, followed after him. Do you see how much grace he's given you? Question number three. When's the last time you thought about what awaits you in heaven? Scripture says it's beyond imagination, so we won't understand all of it, but reflect on what you do know about heaven for just a moment. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more trials, pure... Pure love, pure joy, pure happiness, the kind that you've never experienced. When's the last time you thought about the grace that still awaits you? And then the last question. Where do you recognize that you still need to grow in that grace in your holiness? Where has your life actually been more cosmic treason than holiness? In your image bearing, where have you borne false witness to the God who was so gracious to save you? Will you repent of that today? Will you let that grace of God transform you from the inside out so that you pursue holiness in your life? Keep your head bowed. Is there anybody that, I won't say your name out loud, is there anybody who just wants special prayer this morning? Would you just raise your hand real quickly, up and down? God, were it not for your grace that stepped in, radically changed our lives, none of us this morning, none of us would be following you. Because you tell us no one seeks after God. Were it not for your grace in sending your son to die on the cross, even if we knew who you were if, it were, if it were not for your grace in sending Jesus, we wouldn't have the means to have a relationship with you. If it were not for your grace, keeping us, changing us, transforming us, disciplining us, we wouldn't keep being a Christian. We would eventually give up on this. 
but your grace continues to mold us, remind us of your love toward us. Father, and if it weren't for your grace to be revealed at the end of time that you've told us about in advance, we'd be aiming off into a future that we really didn't know what was out there. But in your grace toward us, you've told us what's to come. You've told us, I will complete what I've started. From beginning to end, it's a story of your grace. Father, I pray this morning for all of us, myself included, who still find that we don't measure yet up to this perfect standard of holiness, that we would find our footing in your grace, that it would not become an excuse for sinning. Heaven forbid, Paul said, but that it would actually motivate us toward holiness. That when we see your grace and we understand your grace, it would point us firmly toward your face. And that we would desire more than anything else, more than life itself, to be pleasing to you. Would you help us? Thank you for your grace in accomplishing that day by day. If there are those here this morning that grew up like me, we weren't told that we had to earn our salvation. We weren't told that we had to do certain... We just think like that as, as, as natural people. Father, help this doctrine of grace to sink deep in our souls that we would find this peace and joy that we have not experienced before and that we would now be motivated not by fear, that we'd be motivated by gratitude, by thankfulness, that we want nothing more than to please you. Father, for, for the number of people that raised their hand this morning. I don't know what what they're going through specifically. I know what I face day in, day out. I'm sure many people here face that and, and other things. Help us to be confronted by your holiness and by your grace each and every time temptation dangles in front of our eyes that we would be quick to reject that because we don't want to trample on this grace that you've shown us we don't want to violate that we don't want to give a false witness to the world but that when temptation comes we say "Uh uh-uh no way my eyes are fixed my hope is grounded fully in the grace of god father help us to live this out for your glory i pray in jesus name